He's at the point of suicide. And the only thing that saves him is the presence of two men who can answer the most important question he could ever ask. Our study tonight begins in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts and in the 36th verse. It is the beginning of what we sometimes refer to as the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. That journey is recorded in Acts 15.36 through chapter 18, verse 22. And you will observe in this verse that Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us return now and visit the brethren in every city wherein, and I'm reading from the American Standard Translation, we proclaimed the word of the Lord. If you mark in your Bible, we proclaimed the word of the Lord. And see how they fare. Now that ties us in to the first missionary journey of Paul. And he says to Barnabas, now let's go back and retrace our steps and see how everyone is doing. And everywhere we're going to go is where we proclaimed the word of the Lord. So that tells you what they did on the first missionary journey. You can go back and read the account of the first missionary journey. And you can follow them as they go along. And you can know whatever terminology the Bible may use about what they're doing. It can be summed up in the idea we proclaimed the word of the Lord. Now Barnabas said, I'm paraphrasing, we need to take John Mark with us. Paul said, we don't need to take John Mark with us. You see, there had been a time that Mark had been with them, but he had withdrawn in Pamphylius from the work. And Paul didn't think he ought to go. Barnabas thought he did. Now there's a time when brethren can disagree with one another and neither one of them be wrong. This was a matter of judgment. And they got red in the face with one another. There was a sharp contention among them about this. But at no time did either of them act unchristian. And at no time did either of them think less of the other because they had a strong disagreement in matters of opinion. And really what happened was twice as much work got done as was going to be because Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas. And began the second missionary journey. So he goes through, verse 41 says, Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Now, chapter 16 ought never been divided there. You know the chapter and verse divisions in our Bible were made by man. And the New Testament was divided by a man named Stephens on horseback, some have said. And apparently the horse stepped in a hole every now and then, and he made a chapter division. And many of them, most of them, in fact, don't need to be there because they break your chain of thought. A lot of people in studying the Bible, when they see a chapter division, think, okay, we're through with that material in the previous chapter, now we're starting new. But notice that's not the case. They are going through the region, the churches of Syria and Cilicia, and he came also to Derbe and Lystra. That just keeps right on reading. And there he picked up Timothy to join him in the work And they go on their way through various cities, delivering a decree which they had received from the brethren in Jerusalem. And you read about that in Acts 15. So now they're doing that. And they go through, verse 6, the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And I want you to observe what he said in verse 6. Having been forbidden of the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. If you mark in your Bible, speak 
the word. Now I know from verse 36 that on the first missionary journey they proclaim the word of the Lord. Therefore it is a reasonable inference for me to infer when I look at verse 6 that the word there is the same word they preached on the first missionary journey because they're going back to confirm those churches and so I can conclude that the word is the word of the Lord. You see, they preach the same thing all the way through. In fact, if you want to do a rich study, just start in Acts chapter 2 and read through the book of Acts and look at the sermons that are preached. And basically, they're the same sermon. And the argumentation is the same argumentation. It's worded a little differently. The audiences are sometimes different. They are approached differently. And when you get to Mars Hill... There's a great difference in the sermon preached, but any time there was a Jewish synagogue or our Jews were gathered together, you'll notice the sermon's basically the same and the affirmation is the same and the conclusion is the same. And that's interesting all the way through. Now they come over against Mysia and they want to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit did not allow them to do that, so they go by Mysia and they come down to Troas. And Luke says that in Troas, Paul had a vision. He saw a man over Macedonia and that man was saying, come over unto us and help us. The text says in verse 9 that he was beseeching him. That word can sometimes be translated begging. Have you ever known anyone that lived in an area that needed the gospel so badly they begged someone to come preach to? That they wanted people to learn the truth so badly, they begged for it. That may very well be, though that word can mean to ask or to encourage, it may mean this man was begging them to come. So Luke says, and Luke joined them at Troas, verse 10, you will notice the pronoun we. Up until that time, he's used the word they, the pronoun they. But beginning in verse 10, he changes pronouns and he begins to talk about we. So we conclude Luke joined this group at Troas as they went on their way. And they're going forth into Macedonia. And I want you to notice very carefully in verse 10 that they concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. If you mark in your Bible, preach the gospel. Now the text says they were proclaiming the word of the Lord. And that they were forbidden to go into a certain area and speak the word. And now here's the gospel. Is it wrong to conclude then that all of these phrases and words speak of the very same thing that we're talking about the gospel? Well now what is the gospel? That's that body of truth that was delivered by which men are saved and by which they remain saved. It would begin if you put all of its constituent parts together with the pre-existence of the Christ when he was the Word, John 1, 1 and following. It would involve his coming to earth by means of the virgin birth. We looked at that a little bit, Matthew 1, the entire chapter of this morning. It would involve his living a sinless life for his time here upon this earth. It would involve his being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God on the cross his being buried in a tomb and his being raised up on the third day, his appearing unto various people during that 40-day period he was on earth, his ascension back into heaven and his sitting down at the right hand of God where he would rule and reign as our sin offering and as king of the kingdom. All those things are involved in the gospel, involving also his will 
for us as Christians. And they are preaching the gospel. They are the first principles of the gospel by which a person learns what to do to be saved. And then there are the continuing principles of the gospel by which one learns what to do to stay saved. So they are now preaching the gospel. So they leave Troas. And Luke says we set a straight course to Samothrace and then to Neapolis. And then from Neapolis we came to Philippi, which is a city of Macedonia. And he says we were in that city for certain days. We don't know how long. But on Saturday, which is the Sabbath day, they went down by the riverside where he said we suppose was a place of prayer. And we sat down. Now I want you to notice something. If you'll follow the Apostle Paul from the very first time you're introduced to him, everywhere he goes into a city, if there's a Jewish synagogue, he goes into that synagogue and he challenges the doctors of the Jewish law by setting forth the proposition that the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah is to suffer. A man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled everything the Old Testament had to say about what would happen to the Messiah. Therefore, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. That's his argument everywhere you find him in a Jewish synagogue. But he doesn't go to a Jewish synagogue in Philippi. And we conclude from that that very likely there was not one there. And so he goes down by the riverside to a place of prayer where he said a group of women had come together. And verse 13, Luke says, We spake unto the women that were come together. Now if you mark in your Bible, spake. Now what is it that they were speaking? Well, Paul said in the first missionary journey, we proclaim the word of the Lord. When they wanted to go to a certain area, the Holy Spirit forbade them to speak there. And now Paul saw this vision and they concluded that God called them into Macedonia to preach the gospel. Would we be off base to say that when Paul and this company gathered with those women and they spake unto them that they preached the gospel? And here are a group of folks who are listening to that. There was a woman there from Thyatira by the name of Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She sold purple, and purple at that time was the finest clothing you could buy. Whatever the fine line is now, that's what she would have sold. And she was apparently in Philippi doing business. And she was there. And I want you to notice in verse 14 that the text says that she was one that worshipped God. Well, she worshipped God under a Judaistic system that had now been taken out of the way by means of the cross at Pentecost. So her worship to God now was not efficacious because she was not a New Testament Christian. She had not entered into fellowship with God according to the principles of the New Covenant. But she, like Cornelius and others who tried to worship under that old system, at least loved God and were trying to worship Him. And when they learned better, they did better. And the text says that we spake unto them. And verse 14 says that Lydia heard us. If you mark in your Bible, heard. Now that carries with it more than the idea than her eardrums were vibrated. The idea of hearing means she listened with the intent to apply. You see, we may get together on these meeting nights and I preach unto you and I vibrate your eardrums and you know that we've had preaching, but you may not hear a thing I say. 
You may leave the building in worse shape than you were when you got here. Or you may leave with no change because you listened to the sound, but you didn't make any application of the message. But Lydia heard us. And the text says, Whose heart the Lord opened to give heed unto the things which were spoken by Paul. If you mark in your Bible, things spoken by Paul. Now what is it that Paul is speaking? Well, he's preaching the gospel. Verse 10. And Lydia is doing what? She's listening to apply. She's listening and intellectually she weighs out what's being said. She decides if her will wants to do what's being preached and her emotion will say, let's do it or let's not do it. That's the way the heart works. And the text says, the Lord opened her heart. Now, how did he do that? Well, that's simple. Through the preaching. He did not work a miracle on her. The Holy Spirit did not operate directly upon her heart in any way. No one from the outside influenced her other than preaching to her the gospel. I want to say to you tonight, if your heart is open to the gospel, it will only be through the preaching of the gospel and the hearing of that gospel with the idea of application. That's the only way your heart can be opened. God chose for the power to be in the message. They're preaching the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But there's a prerequisite to believing. You have to hear it. And that faith is formulated when you listen to the word of the Christ with view to application. Romans 10.17 tells us, So then belief cometh of hearing, and hearing by the word of the Christ. It's not just knowing the message has been preached or being under the sound of the voice, but it's intellectually looking at it, examining it, and then deciding to accept it and to follow it. And so the text says, The Lord opened her heart, and I notice this, to give heed unto the things which were spoken by Paul. Now, if you marked heard, mark give heed and connect the two. Because that's what hearing that saves is all about. I listen to it and I pay attention to it. And I act on it. You ever say to your children, now pay attention. I've been trying to preach and need to say it to grown folks and boys and girls and a lot of other folks. And they are doing everything else in the world but listening and paying attention. So you want to say to them, now listen up here. Now pay attention here. What we're doing here is important. Well, the text says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she paid attention. And I want you to notice what came out of that. And when she was baptized, if you mark in your Bible, she was baptized. And her household. Now what in the world caused her to be baptized. Well the text says. Let me tell you what happened. Paul preached to her the gospel. Now that's the power of God and the salvation. And she heard that gospel. And she gave heed to it. Now the idea of giving heed to it. Would be she believed it. She intellectualized it. And she examined it. And she came to believe. That the facts of the gospel. That were being presented. Were true and accurate. Now I want to ask you, what happens when a person with an honest heart 
examines the gospel, hears it, and heeds it. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, Jesus said, He that believeth, now remember Romans 10, 17, belief comes by hearing what she heard. He that believeth and is baptized, now she was baptized, So I know when she heard, she believed, and when she believed, she was baptized. Now notice what Jesus said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that disbelieveth, that means you don't have to believe, shall be condemned. Now I want to ask you, if I ask you tonight, just take Mark 16, 16. And lay it down over this account of Lydia. Could you tell me tonight whether she was saved or lost? Could you draw a reasonable, logical conclusion as to her state when Paul got there and after he had preached to her? Could you tell the difference? What made the difference? The gospel and her reaction to it, her response. What did she do? She heard it. She heeded it. What did that cause her to do? Caused her to be baptized. Well, they did this for a number of times. They were going back and forth out of the city to the place of prayer. And there was a poor woman there, poor woman in the sense of being misused and mistreated, who had a demon, a spirit of divination. Now that happened in the first century when the miraculous was there to cast it out. It doesn't happen today. I've known some devilish people, but they didn't have the spirit of divination and they didn't have a demon. They just need a good spanking. But here you have a woman who had a divination, spirit of divination. And she would follow them. And I want you to notice what she said in verse 17. She said, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim unto you the way of salvation. Now if you mark in your Bible, proclaim the way of salvation. Well, that's interesting. Because we've just looked at Mark 16, 16. And one is saved when he hears and obeys through baptism the gospel. We've looked at Romans 1.16 that tells us the gospel is the power unto salvation. And this woman says these men are proclaiming the way of salvation. Now what she told was the truth. But there are some people you don't want advertising your meeting. And a woman with a spirit of divination is one of them. Well, you would say, why? Because people would conclude that you're in cahoots with her and you have a spirit of divination. And we want people to understand that when we preach the gospel, that's the Lord's message, not the devil's message. And so Paul cast out that demon. Now that's a miraculous confirmation of the gospel he was preaching. You say, why is that important? Well, in Mark chapter 16, after we talked about what to do to be saved, verses 17 to 20 says that there would be miraculous signs that would follow the believers. And the use of these miraculous signs were for the purpose, Mark 16, 20, of confirming the word. In fact, the text says, the Lord working with them, confirming the word by the signs which followed. Now, I know that's what happened. Because in your Bible, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, among other things, the Hebrew writer said that these things were first spoken by the Lord. And then they were spoken unto us by them that heard him, and that they were confirmed by the signs that followed. 
So I know without a doubt that the purpose of the miraculous in the first century, when used by Christians, was to confirm the word. When used by Jesus, it was to confirm his deity. John 20, 30, and 31. And so they cast out this demon. Now, in South Georgia, we misuse this term. And maybe you misuse it that way here. Paul made these people mad. Not mentally ill, which is what the word really means, but angry. Greatly angry. Very, very angry. Red in the face, hot angry. And they drug Paul and Silas into what we would call in the court system magistrate court in Georgia. Because that's where civil matters are adjudicated. And when they drug them into civil court, they accused them of stirring up these folks to the sense that they were saying things that was unlawful for them to receive. That wasn't true, but that was a false accusation. Now, a judge is supposed to be, and juries are supposed to be, impartial triers of the facts. That's not what went on here. They automatically pronounced them guilty without any trial, without any investigation, and without consideration for the facts. They pulled their coats off of them, and they beat them with rods. That was a Roman punishment, and there was no limit to the number of times they could be struck. And then when they threw beating them, they take them and take them over to the jail, and they put them in jail, and they charge the jailer, and the text says it this way, to keep them safely. In verse 23. Now, that terminology is mild. What was meant by that was, if they escape, you die. So it was more than, well, just lock these fellows up and we'll deal with this later. No, no. They get loose, you die. Your life is on the line. You keep them safely. Now, the jailer had heard that charge, and if you'd been the jailer, how would you have reacted? Would you put them in solitary confinement? He took them into the inner prison, which basically consisted of a hole in the ground, put them down in it, fastened their feet in the stocks, and then he climbed back out of the hole. Now, if they escape, they're going to, first of all, have to get out of the stocks. Second of all, they're going to have to climb out of that hole. Third of all, they're going to have to get out of the prison. Pretty foolproof. Not too concerned about them escaping. In fact, he was so confident in the security system of that jail, he went home and went to sleep. With his life on the line. Well about midnight. God had other plans didn't he. And there was a great earthquake. And the foundation of the prison house were shaken. And the doors were open. And everybody's bands were loose. Now, I've worked in law enforcement long enough. And if you know much about jails. To know that if you take off the handcuffs. And the leg irons. And you open up the doors. You don't have to say to those people. Escape. You don't even have to suggest it. They're gone. Well, the jailer is aroused. And he is aware of what's taking place. He knows his life is on the line. He believes they are all gone. I'm going to tell you, and this is passing, not the sermon for the night. It's free. I won't charge you for it. He did all that on supposition. It's dangerous to assume things. And there are a lot of people tonight who are assuming things about their salvation. And assuming that the prisoners were escaped, he drew his sword. And realizing how he was going to be treated by the Roman authorities, he realized he'd have an easier death if he committed suicide. So he draws his sword, and he's at the point of suicide. Don't you wish you could be there and see it? And a voice 
rings out. Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. That's amazing. Where is this voice? He's in the inner prison, down in that hole. How does he know they're all there? Don't you want to get to heaven and ask that? How did he know they were all there? Did he call roll? Did they all tell him we didn't go anywhere? How does he know that? Well, you can imply some things and maybe infer some things, but it's all your thinking. But it impressed that jailer. And he called for a light and he sprang in. He didn't climb the ladder. He jumped in where Paul and Silas were. And he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why would you ask such a question at a time like this? Well, verse 17 says, These men are proclaiming unto you the way of salvation. The jailer knew why they were in jail. So did all the prisoners. In fact, you'll remember, having been beaten with rods at midnight, Paul and Silas were griping and grumbling and complaining. That's the New Imagination version. They were praying and singing praise unto God. Now here's what I think is the most important part of that verse. And the prisoners were listening. You think that made an impression? We'll have to get to heaven to know for sure. But this jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Now notice where they started with a man that didn't know anything about Jesus. They said, beginning in answering this question, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus. Now why in the world did they say that? Because that's where it starts. You're not going to do anything in order to be saved until first of all you believe That Jesus is Lord, Master. And whatever He tells you to do, you are willing to do it. That's the only way you'll ever let belief go into salvation. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved, thou and thy house. And I've learned something about people in the religious world. I don't know where they buy their Bibles. But most of them with whom I've conversed and most of whom I've heard preach on the radio, somehow... In their translation of Acts 16, their Bible ends at verse 30. Or verse 31, rather. Where he said, believe on the Lord Jesus. And their Bible ends there. And they'll say to you something like, well, see, the Bible says all you have to do is believe. Ladies and gentlemen, in all honesty, that's not what the Bible says. And that's not being honest with the Bible. Because verse 32 is in your Bible. And they spake the word of the Lord unto him. If you mark in your Bible, spake the word of the Lord. That's where we started in Acts 15, 36, wasn't it? Paul said, let's go back where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Now, what are you preaching, Paul? I'm preaching the same thing in Philippi that I preached on my first missionary journey. And what is that? That's the gospel. If I had time to run you through the first missionary journey, there's word. there are words all the way through that you could mark that would show you that it's the gospel, it's the right ways of the Lord, it's the faith, it's the word of the Lord. All the way through you see that terminology. And they are preaching the very same thing. And this man is taught the gospel, spake the word of the Lord. And what happens? And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Does that indicate that his mind has changed from keep them safe to wash their stripes? Now, there's a big jawbreaker word in the Bible, metaneo. That'll rattle your brain. 
What does it mean? Well, it's translated repentance. What does that mean? That means change your mind. And in the context of Bible teaching, it means change your mind about living in sin on purpose. Living a willful lifestyle of sin. Rebellion against the Word of God. Doing that on purpose. You ever say to your children, did you do that on purpose? You know what you meant by that. What an accident. Did you blatantly decide to do that? It's interesting, the American Standard Translation, in Daniel chapter 3, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to bow down, Nebuchadnezzar said, was it a purpose? Did you do it on purpose? Well, that's important. And repentance means I've changed my mind about the way I used to live, which was living in sin on purpose. I'll do everything I can to correct that, and from this moment on, on purpose, I won't live that old lifestyle anymore. That's repentance. And notice, and was baptized. He and his, all his immediately. Well, that's what Lydia did. Well, when did Lydia do that? When the Lord opened her heart through the preaching of the gospel. Well, what did God do to Lydia through the preaching of the gospel? He opened her heart. What did that cause her to do? She heard, she heeded, and she was baptized. He got the same gospel working on this jailer. What did he do? He heard, he heeded, and he was baptized. What happened to Lydia when she heard, heeded, and was baptized? She was saved. What happened to the jailer when he heard, heeded, and was baptized? He was saved. You say, James, how do you know that? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. He that disbelieveth shall be condemned. I don't know if you young people in Mississippi English classes still diagram sentences or not. I found that some of ours don't, and they have lost so much. But if you look at Mark 16, 16, you know anything about the English language, that's what's called a compound complex sentence. It consists of two independent clauses, each of which is modified by a dependent clause. Well, look at it very carefully and I'll show you what I'm talking about. The first independent clause in Mark 16, 16 is, He shall be saved. Now, with just that independent clause, you don't know which He shall be saved. And so there's a dependent clause that uses the function of an adjective here to tell which one shall be saved. And it's the he that believeth and is baptized. So if you want to talk about salvation, you're going to have to stay in that first part of that verse. Now the second independent clause is, he shall be condemned. King James, he shall be damned. You don't know from reading that independent clause which he shall be damned. And so there's a dependent clause that serves as an adjective to tell which one shall be damned or condemned, and it's the he that disbelieveth. Now, if you want to talk about condemnation, you talk about the second part of that verse. Now, what did this jailer say? What must I do to be saved? You know what he did? He did what the first part of that verse says. He believed, and he was baptized, and he was saved. I want to tell you something. If you do that tonight, you'll be saved just like he was. If you'll believe what he believed, and I preached to you tonight the same kind of gospel that Paul preached. If you'll believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, for without faith I cannot please him, John 8, 24. 
If you will believe that, and upon that you will change your mind about living that old lifestyle of sin, you will repent. That's commanded of all men everywhere, Acts 17.30. If you will say with your lips, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's what a man did who went from believing to wanting to be baptized in Acts 8.36 and 37. And if you'll be baptized in water so the blood of Jesus Christ can wash your sins away, I'll tell you what you'll be tonight. You'll be saved. Just like Lydia was. Just like the jailer was. That's so simple, isn't it? That people miss it. And all you have to do is take your Bible and look at what must I do to be saved? And the beauty of it is that you don't have to take my word for it. I've tried to show you tonight in your own Bible. And we know what they preached. We know the response that people had. And we know the after effects of one who heeded and another who heeded just in his 16th chapter of the book of Acts. He's at the point of suicide. And the only thing that saves him is the presence of two men who can answer the most important question anyone could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? Are you asking that question tonight? Or if you've asked that question and you become a Christian, are you faithful? We want to help you. We want every one of us to leave this building that's accountable tonight in the right relationship with God so if we die this night, we'll go to heaven together. Through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, softly, tenderly, Jesus is calling while we stand and encourage